Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, Wither Digital Asset Custody. In the traditional securities markets, custody has not always enjoyed the respect which its uh, practitioners feel it deserves. I think we have known for several years now that custody, far from being disintermediated by decentralized blockchain ledgers, is absolutely crucial to the development of the tokenized securities and fund or digital asset markets. Cryptocurrency investors have themselves discovered, not least amid the events of 2022, that independent third-party custodians, which segregate customer holdings in case the business falls over, are absolutely essential to the safety of their assets. Regulators too, noticeably in the United States, the uh, jurisdiction from pretty much every uh, regulatory inspired innovation in custody has ever come, have woken up to the protection custodians can afford to investors albeit not always in the most constructive of ways. So at Future of Finance, we've spent some time over the last year or so trying to work out what exactly is going on uh, in the world of digital asset custody. Not just which providers amid a choice which runs into hundreds of different firms actually matter, but what's happening to cryptocurrency custodians in a prolonged bear market. The answer in a word is consolidation. We've also looked at how custodial technology vendors are adapting to more difficult market conditions, and we find they're showing a lot more interest now in selling to established banks. And those established banks are interested uh, because the global custodian banks in particular know their existing clients would like them to do something uh, about an asset class they, the buy side, are interested in investing in as and when it comes fully into existence at scale. But it's also an asset class which presents risks which are very different from those the custodian banks are used to managing in the securities and fund markets. And as our contribution to these various uh, strategic reorientations, we've embarked on a long and deep investigation into what firms are doing and what regulators think all types of custodian ought to be doing. That work has, of course, made use of publicly available information, but also of the findings from a proprietary questionnaire, which is open to any digital asset custodian or custodian technology vendor interested in reaching our audience of potential clients, measuring themselves against their competitors, or just understanding better the markets which they operate in. And you'll find, if you are interested in uh, taking part in that research exercise, you'll find the questionnaire on the homepage of our website, adjacent to the second edition of our digital asset custody guide. But today our aim is more limited, it's to review our most recent work and our findings with a group of experts, each with a distinct perspective on the issues. Uh, Marius Lunding-Smith is a Director of Strategy and Growth at Finoa, the Berlin-based crypto asset custodian licensed under the German Banking Act and regulated by the BaFin. Thilo Derenbach is Head of Sales and Business Development in Digital Security Services at Clearstream Banking in Frankfurt. Mark Mayerfeld is Chief Revenue Officer at GK8, the cybersecurity fintech now owned by Galaxy Digital Holdings, that provides an end-to-end -end platform to help financial institutions self-custody their digital assets securely. Tarek Rashid is a partner at international law firm Reed Smith. He specializes in advising investment banks, funds, exchanges, and custodians on both the regulatory and transactional aspects of derivatives, structured products, and crypto assets. 
As always, at a Future of Finance webinar, we have an audience uh, and our panelists are eager to answer your questions as well as mine. So I encourage everybody uh, watching or listening to submit their questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. And again, as always, uh, we won't be saving those questions and comments up to the end, but we will endeavour to address and answer them as we go along which means you can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset, and we very much encourage you to do that. But we're going to begin by drawing on the wisdom of the crowd. We invited everyone registering for today's webinar to give us their opinion on two questions uh, highly pertinent uh, to the future of the digital asset custody uh, industry. And uh, we asked the, the first question we put to, to the audience is, um, which interests are actually driving change uh, in digital asset custody? We restricted this to the buy side, the, the end consumers of, of, a, of a custody product. As you can see from this slide, which gives the results, there's a pretty clear message that it's institutional money and the institutions which manage institutional money, uh, asset owners and their asset managers and their alternative asset managers, more than two thirds uh, of the respondents think they are the institutions which are going to make the meaningful changes in digital asset custody over the next five years. What this slide says to me in particular is that if you look at the bottom of it, the retail investors and the high net worth investors, and I think had we asked about sell-side professional firms who've traded cryptocurrency over the last decade or so, they are not going to be the architects and influencers of change over the next five years. This market is institutionalizing uh, from a buy-side perspective as well as a sell-side perspective. Our second question, uh, which we put to, uh, to a registrants for today's webinar was, which type of digital asset custodian do we think is going to dominate the market by the end of the decade, by, by 2030? And here we get a very clear message that uh, it's regulated custodian banks that are going to be the winners, if you like, of the present contest to decide who will dominate the marketplace. Uh, but the, the institutions which are following some distance behind regulated custodian banks, in other words, digital asset exchanges, and the regulated non-bank custodians, which have emerged mainly from the cryptocurrency markets, uh, I think this slide is also telling us that you need to be regulated. Uh, that if you're not regulated, if you look right at the bottom there, uh, you're not going to uh, have much of a future um, in this market. It might be worth just delving a little bit into, you know, where these this final result comes from. And if we look at the the third slide. Uh, what you can see here is that, and I think this reinforces the message of the previous slide, if you're a regulated non-bank custodian, you tend to think that your future lies, uh, the future of digital asset custody lies with regulated non-bank custodians like yourself. 44% um, uh, of, of the answers came from people voting for themselves. You get something a bit similar with digital asset exchanges. They too think that they have a meaningful part to play uh, in the future. What's really interesting about the regulated custodian banks, which are the which are the ones marked in red, is that the people voting for regulated custodian banks as the face of the future of digital asset custody are a bit more independent uh, than those who voted for digital asset exchanges or regulated non-bank custodians. In other words, 
it was consultants, it was law firms, it was technology vendors, uh, other odds and ends. I mean, you get a bit of regulated banks voting for themselves, as you can see at the top. But on the whole, I think that 58% uh, vote for regulated custodian banks is a more reliable finding uh, than the votes for digital asset exchanges and regulated non-bank custodians. And with that, I think, um, brief presentation, and obviously these slides will be made available to everybody who who's registered for the webinar after the fact. Uh, we can now um, uh, commence our discussion, and, and but maybe we can begin by asking um, our, our panelists what messages they're taking away from those slides. Does it surprise you that uh, the future is so clearly institutional, both in terms of the custodian banks that will be dominating the marketplace, also in terms of the, the buy-side institutions that will be will be driving it. Um, Tilo, perhaps I could begin with you. I, I imagine that's a, a kind of welcome set of findings for you. But once you've given the verdict, we could we could talk to Mark and Marius a bit about how they interpret it. Wonderful. Dominic, first of all, thank you very much uh, to you and the organization for having me today. And thanks to the audience for listening. We hope we'll make it as interesting as possible for you and uh, also entertaining, perhaps. Uh, to your question, it is, of course, it's it's a satisfactory sort of outcome for us as a financial market infrastructure in the traditional world. But it, I think it very much reflects the, the reality of the interaction that we have and that other market participants have with, with the industry players. If we look at traditional custody champions, if I may call them that, because they have decades of experience in safekeeping assets, in uh, processing lifecycle events for these assets, it is something that is, of course, of great value. They have the, the, the backbones, they have the back offices available for, for these sorts of activities. But I think there's also an aspect of... Um, trust and uh, high level of regulation. Uh, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but that, that high level of regulation that these custody banks uh, in, well, enjoy or endure, <laughs> depending on where you, from where you look at it, uh, is something that is of great, great value in, in this context, because we've seen some of the negative examples of alternative solutions that have either gone belly up or have uh, had fraud events that are, you know, very, very sad and must be avoided in the future. And so it's a question of, of risk, trust and, and level of regulation from my perspective on, in regards to the custodial banks. And then in regards to the, the buy side clients, it entirely overlaps with our experience in the context of the, the discussions that we have, the, 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 the volume of discussions we have with buy side banks or sorry, buy-side players or asset owners, asset managers versus sell-side organizations or others is probably 75 to 25. They're very, very interested in these developments. They see great business opportunities, uh, new distribution channels, whatever the, the dynamics may be, but they're very, very much driving these initiatives and looking for not only solutions, but actually value in leveraging the, the technologies that are available, putting existing traditional assets or uh, you know, um, native crypto assets onto the blockchain and using the benefits that are being generated there. And so uh, something that I entirely um, support and sign up to, the results would play very much into what we see and experience. Okay, well, I, I'll come back to the point you raised about regulation being a big part of our discussion today, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, um, and also we'll need to ask some questions about what banks are actually doing. Uh, clearly there's an appetite for them. But before we do, Mark, just perhaps you'd give us a verdict on on what you think, the, what, what messages leapt off those slides to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it also uh, co corresponds with what we're seeing in the market. Um, 
I mean, without a doubt, the institutional uh, business, I and mean, we're seeing right now an uptake in, in projects around stable coins, which is going to, and the ETF world in the US, this, mm. these are all lending itself to liquidity. And in order for the institutional base to really pick up um, in the digital asset space, it requires liquidity. So this is the first step that we're seeing going towards that. And there's no doubt that uh, the regulated banks and the large banks, but also non-banks are going to play a role. Um, I mean, we're seeing it today. The banks, even in jurisdictions that don't have regulation, are very much preparing themselves for uh, for the inevitable. And what they're doing is they're putting together, they're putting installing infrastructure, whether it be in the tokenization space, whether it be in the crypto space. Some of them are doing POCs, but they're all getting to a point where they they realize they need to be ready. And as soon as the regulation does come into play in certain jurisdictions that don't exist today, they want to be able to flick a switch and get into play. So I, I think we're definitely seeing that uptake already in the space uh, by the banks. Um, and of course, the exchanges and, and non-bank custodians are clearly going to play a role, but the, the regulated large banks are, are clearly the going to be ultimately the winners, which I would agree with the poll here. Okay. And thank you, Mark, for bringing that up. We'll, we'll look at the rising appetite among non-bank custodians for getting regulated in some, in some shape or form a bit a bit later in this in this discussion but uh, marius perhaps I, I could bring you in at this point what what are um little questionnaire and those slides told us is that there is a big institutional appetite for the regulated custodian banks to get into this business we're also picking up in our research that more and more banks uh, are getting into the digital asset custody business as well. So there is some kind of response to that. But on the other hand, um, it's not always the sort of banks you'd expect. It's not always the big global custodian banks who are, who are the first movers in here. We see a lot of private banks, almost as, because they're responding to private banking clients who want to invest in cryptocurrency. So although we see this appetite and we see increasing bank activity, uh, we're not actually seeing... Um, global custodian banks used to looking after institutional money uh offering a product if you like which is very convincing for institutional investors it seems most of these bank offerings are still you know, a bit of bitcoin bit of ether if you really must but i don't see massive commitment to security tokens or, or tokenized funds um am i what explains that marius and um does it accord with what you're seeing in the marketplace? Yeah, I think uh, many of the the things that was also mentioned by by Mark and Tilo here, I, I I fully agree with, and I think what we've seen say up until today, and I think it's important to acknowledge that the the crypto market and and industry and technology for that matter is still uh, quite nascent, and so naturally it has been been led by say more say risk on investors and i think from a from an infrastructure and, and regulatory perspective that, uh, that that poses kind of two sets of challenges one is that you deal with a technology that is fundamentally very new uh, and something that is not say easily to integrate with with existing systems you also have a lot of innovation happening on the say blockchain layer itself so we are still very much, I think, shaping uh, which technologies and rails we're going to use for, uh, say, these future financial rails. That in turn, say, also uh, puts a lot of um, constraints, uh, but also poses a lot of challenges, say, operationally for actors that want to uh, provide services in the space. So I think that is where 
let's call them uh, non-bank custodians like Finor have have emerged serving say a need that currently exists in, in, in the market that is say, highly fragmented where it's very difficult to find uh, service providers that can cover uh, all of your uh, cryptocurrency needs from from say one uh, place um i think simultaneously you also seen that regulation i think was also mentioned has not really been able to pick up and there hasn't been uh, say proper frameworks in place allowing uh, say both existing larger banks to enter uh, but also for innovation to happen on the on the service provider level so there are uh, probably more than hundreds of custodians uh, in in existence today the non-bank custodians of which some uh, are regulated or are pursuing uh, regulation but it's still uh, highly highly fragmented and i think for larger uh, banks or traditional custodians to enter the space you kind of need to solve this technological challenge that i think mm. is very present today still uh, and then also as a from a regulatory perspective we need more say, unification and, and better standards and frameworks that one can adhere to before we really see uh say full-blown uh, projects and not just pocs uh, coming about um, Right, yeah. we're starting to get questions coming in now. Thank you, Marius. Um, and I'll, I'll turn to this in a second. I'd just like to give um, Tarek a question to, to give us his his view on this. Tarek, are you, do you, are you finding yourself advising major uh, global banking groups that are prepared to develop a digital asset custody product which covers uh, not just cryptocurrencies, but security tokens, tokenized funds, the full gamut of digital assets? Do you see anybody developing that product yet? Yeah, I mean, to begin with, thank you very much for having me um, on this webinar. Um, you're absolutely right. We are getting tentative uh, expressions of interest from various major uh, institutions who are at present building capacity. I mean, good examples are BNY Mellon, JP Morgan, State Street, so on and so forth, who are building up uh, their own ecosystems. Uh, but, you know, these are massive institutions. So the the feeling we get is that there has definitely been buy-in from the major financial institutions to enter uh, crypto assets generally and custody specifically. Uh, but it just takes time for them because they aren't as nimble as the smaller players. And of course, what they also have to uh, take into account is uh, the fact that they're already regulated. They're already subject to, uh, you know, in the US, they'd be subject to various regulatory oversight, same thing in the UK, the EU, so on and so forth. So they have to take into consideration much more actively what their regulators are thinking and also reputational risk. And finally, and I think this sometimes gets ignored, any blowback from, uh, from an AML and terrorist financing perspective. So they're just slow moving. Uh, I think they'll continue picking up pace and during the course of this year and next year, I think we'll start seeing much more public announcements from them. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was just wondering what- If I may. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, go ahead. If I may just add, I think I agree with what Tarek said, but one of the things that you see, we see with the large institutions and something that we took into account probably about a year, year and a half ago in our platform mm -hmm. is you mentioned is, are they going to use the same infrastructure to support tokenization and, and crypto assets? And one of the things we focused on is the ability to provide generic support 
mm. or as an example, generic support for smart contracts across the board, which allows really customers to work with any type of tokens. Uh, generic support for all EVM chains. So providing them the widest coin coverage allows them to start with potentially tokenization and then move over into the crypto assets when the regulation comes into play. And even we have some of the top tier banks that, um, as Tarek mentioned, they don't have the ability even to hold crypto, even if they're working yeah. in a tokenization space, they can't hold crypto for the gas fees, as an example. So yeah. we have a solution that allows what we call gasless solution, where they don't have to ever have gas, uh, Ethereum or or crypto assets in their, to cover the gas fees in their wallet infrastructure. So these are all things that we we put into play in order to really support every level of the institution, even in the first phase of going with tokenization and then moving towards the crypto world as regulation comes into play. Yeah, I mean, that's well put because I, I right now, my understanding is that there's a lot of capacity building um, and understanding what is a relative competitive advantage for each of the banks. Of course, if you look at JP Morgan, I think they've got gone somewhat more out through the Onyx platform than a lot of the other um, entities have done. A few banks even are clubbing together. You know, for example, Deutsche Bank and so on and so forth have been concentrating much more in stable coins. Uh, but yes, I'd say at this point, it's very much capacity building. And if I may add, uh, agreeing to all of these things, it's a lot, and I hope we will touch on this later in the webinar, it's a lot about um, establishing certain levels of standardization that will mm. allow for also interoperability or uh, consol not so consolidators, but providers of, of standard interfaces, leveraging capability across different asset types, across regions, across jurisdictions, as Mark, you, you described with your, with your response. I think standardization as a basis for interoperability to allow for mobility of those assets across chains, custodians, whatever we want to call it, I think that's going to be super, super key for the institutional players to really get on board because the, the upfront in, initial investment is quite high. The unit costs at the moment are extremely high compared to the mm. volumes that we see in the institutional space. And perhaps also coming back to the questions that we've been receiving, right? If we talk about alternative assets of cryptocurrencies as specific individual asset groups, we might you know, have different answers as to what we're discussing here, which is more to your point, uh, Dominic, security tokens or tokenized, mm. uh, sorry, security tokens or uh, tokenized let's, securities. Right? But let, let, let's, let's just, I've been arguing in effect yeah. that future of this market is institutional and that's why it needs regulated mm. banks. Uh, but I've been corrected here by Ian Hunt, who says there are 420 million people with holdings in crypto and saying it's all about institutional investors may be missing a big sector and a big point, the non-bank nature of crypto appears to what he calls mall investors, retail investors, uh, and who's going to look after them. Now, I, I'm not sure that, that crypto is that bigger market. It's what, 1.7 trillion, which is trivial by comparison with the global equity or global bond or global fund markets. Your point, Tilo, about lack of mm -hmm. scale is, you know, mm -hmm. banks get involved with all this infrastructure. Yeah. So, so who is going to look after you? And how many how many cryptocurrency custodians do we need to look after Ian's mall investors? Uh, I, I think even before we get into that, I think even with retail, uh, the regulatory trajectory of travel across the major uh, jurisdictions, the US, the EU, the UK, APAC, so on and so forth is regulation. Uh, so the expectation is that even if one's dealing with retail, 
the custodians ought to be regulated and ideally they they ought to be the usual suspects and i think the bitcoin etf is is a good example it'll be interesting to see how the etf market develops because if the etf market develops there is clearly a big role custodians will play because they are the ones who will be holding the bitcoin so i think even with with retail uh the push from the regulatory perspective is very much uh towards the usual regulated custodian so i think we more or less get to the same position regardless of the sort of investors we're looking at but i think i think the non bank custodians get that point one of the things i looked at ahead of this webinar was was 16 jurisdictions uh around europe to see who was applying for these uh vasp or virtual asset service provider uh licenses and across those 16 jurisdictions it came as more than 2000 2135 to be exact uh of registered vasps now it's difficult to tell from that how many of them are actually interested in 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 custody but what is interesting is is getting on for in fact rather more than half of them are in poland mm. and in fact if you add lithuania to that you're getting on for two thirds of the total of registered vasps in europe are actually in these two jurisdictions it's quite hard to tell what's really going on and we're, we're doing more work mm. on that but it does tell you the same thing as our little poll has done which is actually the future and what you've just said Tarek the future here lies with regulated institutions mm. with regulated banks you're going to be nowhere if you're not regulated by somebody somewhere um and I, i'm I, i guess my you know my question here is um how how is a buyer of these services meant to choose between I mean, what are the merits of being registered as a vasp in poland as opposed to being you know registered bank with the occ and the federal reserve in the united states you know i think it goes to also also what's behind it in other words yeah you can go to poland and spend a very small amount of money in a very short period of time you can have you can have a license but really i think when when you're talking about people investing or putting their money in in institutions they have to understand really what's been enforced over there so if mm. it's if if you're not if you're doing custody and you're storing your assets in a in a hot wallet okay on the internet then okay you're you're not going to have security you need to have it in a proper offline cold device disconnected you need to have proper insurance and governance and policies built into the solution so there's a lot more than just having the piece of paper saying i've got license but there's yeah. got to be a lot more to it that's built uh, as part of the overall governance and that's where um institutions that have reputation are going to come into play as well i mean there are more than 25,000 banks globally um all of them are are storing fiat in some way shape forms today and i mean ultimately and then and then you've got the non banks on top of that there's going to be plenty of players playing in the custody space and yeah i mean every license is going to be in, in of itself different but you got to look at what's really uh the institution is using to secure the assets and who we get to the, into the regulatory thing tilo perhaps you could just uh, antilo you could address this question from peter christmas really which is he says would the picture change if we drill down into asset types in other words we're talking about private equity and real estate based digital assets would we still be talking about custodian banks uh there's been a lot of emphasis on these privately managed assets real estate these intrinsically liquid uh asset classes which don't have much infrastructure behind them this is the right starting point for tokenization uh, all the rest of it uh, you know i see a lot of activity on digital asset exchanges but not that much interest on the part of custodians 
Yeah, indeed. And I'll answer that question and perhaps I'll also um, touch on Henry's, Henry Ration, good to see you here, right, Henry, Henry Ration's question in regards to the benefits. Why are we even discussing this topic? And I think um, when we look at mainstream sort of security tokens or to tokenized securities versus cryptocurrencies, alternative assets, real estate uh, elements, and so forth. I think the, uh, the we would get a different uh, question to your to your point, Peter. I think that that's what you're suggesting. I would support that. Um, and why is that so? Because the, the level of efficiency gain uh, for those different asset classes is different. The volumes are different and, and the, the players that have mm. key expertise in these is going to be slightly different. That is that is my view. For overall, though, we, we have to ask the question that Henry is rightly putting in front of us. What are we, we, what are the institutions actually looking for in tokenized assets? What are the sorts of efficiency gains, new business opportunities, um, so and so forth that effectively allow us to move into the space and scale to your point of again and that's the important piece we will see much the, sorry the speed of adoption is basically what i'm saying the speed of adoption will very much depend on the one hand side the level of standards and interoperability and the effects positive in terms of savings or uh, or, or business opportunities we can generate in these asset classes and they will depend on the type of asset class the players in that space but more broadly generally on the on the question of whether we need a new technology to achieve those uh, benefits or whether to your point henry electronic assets could equally reach those benefits without forcing the market into a new tech stack that's a question I will not answer all by myself. We're just here to debate that. But um, I think those are key elements that we need to discuss. And uh, I hope, Peter, that answers a little bit your question. Depending on those answers, the, the, the players will be very different. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we don't want to get into a, a, a discussion about what will make tokenization work. But that's a whole subject in itself. But it's clearly essential to provide an adequate, scalable business for for regulated custodian banks to to get involved with um and we've touched upon the obstacles to this actually happening among them you raised telo interoperability but let's let's think a bit about the this regulatory uh, uncertainty question and even where regulation is being in place uh we see different national implementations even of the same regulation i'm thinking here particularly of the the anti money laundering um regime of FATF, for example, at the national level, they seem to be, you know, implemented differently. Mm. So um, there is a, and maybe Marius, you have some some observations to to share on on this as well. Um, just just thinking about legal and regulatory issues in in general. Um, and thinking back to our poll, you know, not regulated, you don't have a future here what what do you think is really going through the minds of all those banks and non-banks that are toying with the idea of making a major commitment to this to this marketplace is legal and regulatory uncertainty are they waiting for that to happen or are they starting to map out a strategy which is credible now very good question i think yeah, there, there's two components to that. I think if you look, so if you take the investor perspective to begin with today and you try to navigate uh, this landscape, and I think 
Miles mentioned it a little bit, but in working with custodians, for instance, and in determining, you know, who's an adequate provider for, for your needs, it is pretty difficult or has been pretty difficult to understand the, say, regulatory nuances that exist globally today. So if you go to the US, if you go to uh, Germany, if you go to uh, Singapore, uh, other jurisdictions, there might be very different requirements for what it means to be operating this business. And that is something that can be very difficult to comprehend. Um, and I think to a point now we are in a, a, a world where re regulation is still highly fragmented, mm. which means that if you are as a larger institution thinking about a, a global play in this space, there is a lot of nuances that you have to, to navigate. Uh, that can be regulatory diversification, that can be, you know, finding a setup that can be uh, broadly applicable. I think today we are still uh, not there where it would be very easy to go out and set up, say, a fully global business. Um, so there is a degree of, uh, say, maturity, maturity that the industry needs to, to reach from a regulatory perspective. And there is, say, more frameworks for what it means to be uh, say a service provider in this business for instance that needs to be better defined because because as of today if you look at uh, say what it means to be a, a qualified custodian in, in the US for instance that might be very different in in that of Germany uh, there are say some some high level guidelines that, that you can follow but there's a lot of uh, nuances and, and details that are not uh, necessarily easily understood um, so I think uh, to sum that up it, it, we're still not there where it's uh, you know uh, easy to kind of put out a strategy, but I definitely think that uh, there is a active uh, thoughts on, on how to kind of best, you know, set up operations to to support a, a global crypto play in a scalable way. Yeah, and 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 to build on that, I, I agree completely what 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 you have said, Marcus. It's also that different jurisdictions have a different level of enthusiasm for crypto. I mean, right now in the U.S., um, the mood is at best ambivalent, as opposed to what you see in the Middle East or indeed APAC. Uh, so, you know, I've got full sympathy for uh, a, a, a lot of uh, entities that are trying to come up with a global offering. I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do that at present, which I think is very frustrating because crypto by nature is a 24-7, 365 uh, day sort of a business. And that's how investors also look at the asset class. Can we, Tarek, be specific about the US? Mm. Describe the regulatory attitude there as ambivalent. I think that's rather generous. I think mm. most people... <laughs> actually as being somewhat hostile at this point yeah people listening just let me remind them what's what's happened there and in custody terms there's no jurisdiction more important than the united states you know through uh, ERISA and through the 1940 mutual fund act it has been an enormously influential uh force around the world in shaping how custody custody works where the money comes from but it's also the regulation uh shapes how that money is custodied and what we have now is decisions by the SEC and by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, uh, which are pretty hostile to digital assets. We've got SAB 121, this staff paper from the SEC, mm. which holders 
of custodial um, assets, digital assets, to recognize those assets on the balance sheet, both sides, both the asset and the liability side. But that is a whole new departure in custody, which is traditionally an off-balance sheet business. Then you've got the SEC putting forward this uh, safeguarding rule through these revisions to the 1940 uh, Investment Advisors Act, which has led to an unprecedented coalition of hostility against the measure from virtually every financial institution and financial trade association you can think of, uh, because it threatens to undermine how banks fund themselves uh, and indeed to widen custodian liabilities beyond the point at which um, they can reasonably be held responsible for what happens to customer assets. Now, on top of that, you've got the OCC uh, refusing, uh, you know, national trust bank licenses, or custodian bank licenses to even the most respectable of the institutions which have emerged from the cryptocurrency industry. And I wonder, Tarek, you know, how important are these measures, are these decisions uh, in discouraging the global custodian banks from, you know, making a, a full commitment to digital asset custody? Yeah, they're extremely discouraging. I mean, we have a number of clients who would much rather come up with offerings outside the U.S., in other words, not touch U.S. persons, and just wait and see what happens in the U.S. Uh, you know, if you look at SAB uh, 121, that contradicts outright the proposed safeguarding rule. There's a lot of interagency arguments, clearly between the SEC uh, and the CFTC, uh, you know, very fundamental questions about what crypto is. Courts are playing a cameo role as well. There's even been talk about Ether being viewed as uh, a, a security. There doesn't seem to be enough of a push to come up with an overarching legislative uh, approach along the lines of what we've seen uh, in the EU. And all of this just means that... Um, as far as crypto is concerned, a lot of the innovative uh, developments could very well happen in other jurisdictions with then um, people just hoping that the approach in the US calms down. Also, what I've heard uh, a number of uh, you know, clients speak about uh, is whether the manner by which the U.S. Uh, ends up reconciling with crypto is actually going to be more through international standards, through the B, a BCBS, a FATF, BIS, so on and so forth. So as crypto matures, uh, especially the, the custodial offerings mature globally, and we've got international standards, at that point, maybe the U.S. Uh, picks up uh, a, a more positive approach towards crypto. And we don't have yeah, that, that, that level. Le Sorry, go on, Mark. No, please. No, no go ahead. Back um, and we don't have that level of standardization across uh, the regulations. But to be fair, or luckily, both in Europe and in Asia, uh, regulators in the domestic market has not have not waited and have pushed forward with actually mm. very quite very comprehensive uh, regulations, be it in, in mm. Luxembourg, in Switzerland, in, in Germany, and of course in the Asian markets as well for crypto, but also for uh, digital and tokenized other assets, which is very, very good. But to your point, the level of harmonization and standardization across mm. those regulations, even in, in Europe, doesn't exist yet. We have the pilot regime, that's nice. Mm. Mika uh, will uh, will be a, a real milestone for from a crypto perspective. Yeah. 
but indeed more harmonization even EU-wide across the Asian markets and of course in the US would be very, very welcome, particularly for the large institutions that you've mentioned earlier. Yes, of course. But I think I think just jumping in, I think harmonization across such a nascent uh, asset class is going to take years, if not a number of decades. If you look at securities, for example, that's taken, you know, decades upon decades. Same thing with derivatives. It's taken a financial crisis for the G20 commitments to show up. So uh, I think from a regulatory perspective, there will continue to be a heavy amount of fragmentation. I think my car is interesting uh, because at least it's an ambitious pan-EU mm -hmm. uh, approach, which then shows um, you know, other jurisdictions how to approach uh, regulation. Quite. Uh, so I think I think my car will be. Well, I think the Eric, it, it excludes security tokens, which is the big opportunity yeah. for our friends here. But, but precisely, precisely, and I think you know I've got sympathy as to the, the approach my car has taken and keeping security tokens within the the, the, the ambit of 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 Mifid two, um, because at least we know how Mifid two behaves. So it's uh, to the extent that a person's dealing with security tokens, I would argue that a person dealing with security tokens is in a, is in a somewhat better place knowing what to expect under MIFID 2, whereas my car is, is, is pretty untested. But does, it, does my car then give the national jurisdictions an advantage? They can make up what they like within the constraints of MIFID to attract digital asset custody business. Um, and Thiele will have some observations to make uh, on this, what's happening in Germany. I hope you'll tell us everything about Germany in a minute. But Mark, before we leave the United States, you, I'm sure, have yeah. some views on... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the current administration is is quite hostile to digital assets. That's a that's a given. Um, I think the Bitcoin ETF uh, was sort of forced upon uh, Gensler to some extent, where and, and that got approved, which is great. Um, but I think the overall feeling is that under the current administration, it's which it comes up in November for for uh, new elections, is going to be a struggle, uh, I think, for most of this year. Uh, but with that said, we are seeing even the U.S. banks, uh, the global ones and even the non-global ones, are still realizing that even if it's a year away or a year and a half away from being regulated, they move very slowly and they need to get into place the infrastructure and the solutions in order to be ready when it does actually come to play. And I think everybody does realize it's, it is a matter of time. The US market can't be in a scenario where they're not providing regulation around the digital asset space. I think and that's a, that's a realization. The question is just the timing of this. Now, from a fragmentation, I mean, somebody used the word harmonization across different uh, regulatory jurisdictions. I mean, we're, well, clearly it's gonna be a long time before we have a single regulation on the global sense. But what we are seeing is we're seeing a lot of different jurisdictions picking up, and I, I'll use the word copycat, uh, other jurisdictions. I mean, if you look at Turkey, Turkey is a good example where regulation was supposed to go into play probably about a year ago. It still hasn't been announced just yet. I think everybody's anticipating it shortly. They took a lot of the um, the requirements from, from places like Thailand and the UAE, for instance, having all the key material on within the country itself having physical on-premise installations. These are all things that a lot of the existing regulations are, are trying to copy what, what succeeded in this. Um, and I think you're going to see more of that over, over time over here.
Mm. So, uh, uh, Ian Hunter's asked a very interesting and important question here, which which I'm going to come to in a minute. But let's just let's finish talking about the the, the regulatory scene in in Europe. And uh, Tilo, Germany has carved out actually a rather progressive role for itself in 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 at the national level. It's passed this Electronic Securities Act. Under that act, by a very complex legal process, it has created things which actually work. You can register as a digital asset custodian. Uh, it's created a, a registration function for electronic securities. It has also even started to inspire activity. We've got, I think, uh, uh, the last count I saw was 62 you know, security token issues. Uh, and thousands of these uh, digitized securities, which are uh, being lodged with, with D7, um, which is part of the, the Clearstream um, uh, empire. So things are actually happening in Germany, possibly not um, in quite as revolutionary a fashion as you might think, particularly those thousands of, of securities I, I referred to a minute ago. But, but can you explain to us where what is happening in Germany and why it's why it's interesting if you're in the custody business? Yeah, I will. Very happy to. And I'll do a little bit of marketing uh, for your organization <laughs> because you've put out this uh, digital asset custody guide um, in, a, in a new edition, looking at the German market specifically, but it's actually quite comprehensive also uh, looking at the European developments and outside. Uh, I, I won't repeat what's in the uh, what's in the guide and perhaps uh, um, others have further comments. So in the German market, or if I, if I go back to my sentence earlier, they're very comprehensive domestic regulations available in a number of European markets, such as Switzerland, Luxembourg, and as you rightly state, in Germany with the E-Securities Act, the EWPG, Wettpapiergesetz. And these are very comprehensive for the participants that are looking to establish themselves as crypto and uh, tokenization platforms in those markets. And I think they've all been able to attract a very relevant level of interest and activity. You have the HSBC's Orion in, in Luxembourg, just to name one, there are many others. Uh, we have our D7 platform in the German market. You have SDX in the Swiss market. So uh, back to the point that Tarek was making, the regulatory environment and framework is important as a base foundation, basically, to, to attract institutions to, to play a role. And for the German market specifically, just to say two or three words on this, you mentioned um, crypto assets in the in the tens that have been issued worth i think just under 200 million euros now the the assets that have been tokenized under the e-securities act in germany versus the seven well in the meantime twelve thousand uh digital uh security issuances worth north of 3.5 billion um, uh, euros already so just to put that into perspective but also in the in larger context um, of the 1.7 trillion in the in the cryptocurrency space but the regulations are foundations for to build on very fundamental fundamentally important and in this context we then see for the german market for example that these allow for the growth of the markets they don't scale at a level of a hockey stick hockey stick yet but the volumes are rising because more participants many many new players new entrants in the market actually are leveraging uh, these regulatory frameworks 
to provide their products and, and services, which is quite important. I'm not going to dwell too much more on that, but I think the German market is a good example. The Luxembourg Jewish Swiss mm. market could be others to clarify and, and sh showcase why the regulatory foundations are so important mm. to actually get these um, these instruments off the ground. Am I not right, Tilo, to think that, that actually what's happening in Germany also displays the limitations of tokenization so far? Mm. Thousands of issues. Absolutely. You might digitize the issuance process, but they don't digitize anything else. The entire paraphernalia of, of, of intermediaries and service providers continues to exist. So we're not yet reaching the 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 world described by Henry Ration, you know, in which, um, you know, efficiency is transformed and operational risk goes down and capital well, allocation. Sorry, and I'm I'm not uh, you know Henry and I we know each other, but we I'm not going to defend him specifically. But at a unit level, we very much can evidence those effects, very much so. In every one of the of the platforms, be they the traditional ones uh, issuing digital securities like ours or those actually creating real tokens, at a unit level, all those effects are real. They just don't add up to a business case. Right? So the the scale, the lack of scale means that the unit benefits don't add up to something relevant enough yet right, for market participants to really push into into those segments. I hope that the colleagues agree with that or please con, you know contradict so, me, but so that you, is the main yeah, point well, what, that I would have. Yeah. Marius, what yeah, you, one of the things that you mentioned. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Marius, why don't you give us a thought about Germany if you have one? Yeah, I think I would very much allude to what uh, Tito said here. I think uh, contrary to what people normally associate with, with Germany, they have been, and the German regulators, very proactive in, in, in regulating the space. And I, I say that uh, coming coming from Denmark, where there has been very little uh, developments. Um, so, uh, you know, back in, in 2020, it's a very comprehensive frameworks were, were rolled out. Uh, and I would say the the barriers to entry have been been high and say specifically we're down now up to i think nine nine uh, participants totally but it also means that the the, the quality of, of the entrance and participants is usually very high and i think that's also what what, what tilo mentioned here i think we've seen some uh, very interesting uh, projects come out of you know uh, having these frameworks in place that are of a Say both a very interesting uh, quality, uh, but I think also uh, is allowed to, to to operate in a way and through a framework that is say much easily understood than, than other jurisdictions. Um, so in in that sense, it's moving perhaps a little bit slower uh, sometimes, but at least the, the the projects that arise and the and the innovation that we see is 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 solid and and very firm. So maybe just one 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 comment there. Um. Tarek, I think this is a question for you from Dan Feeney about, mm. I don't know whether you've seen it, about the, the regular reserves, but whether you want to, to look at that before you look at that question about the the cash reserving. Um, perhaps you could, you could look at that while I, while we, we ask Mark to, um, you were trying, you were trying to chip in there, Mark, on, on the question about, um, about Germany. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we announced the Galaxy GK announced the partnership with DWS uh, in Germany. Um, and, and one of the big things, which I believe is probably a use case that is has real merit to it, is the stablecoin. Uh, this is going to be a euro stablecoin, but we're involved in a number of stablecoin projects around around the world. And obviously, the big benefit for that is obviously settlement and uh, the huge value proposition when it comes to if you're doing it properly, 
to have instant settlement as opposed to a T plus one or T plus two, depending on where you are, um, has tremendous uh, business case, um, a lot more than just the, the typical crypto uh, assets in the world. I mean, the amount of foreign exchange traded on a daily basis um, dwarfs uh, in comparison to anything in the crypto space. So I think you are going to see slowly but surely use cases with the value associated with it. Um, and, and we're seeing a start with that. Tarek, are you but ready? it's not the holy grail. That, that would I think, be my only statement. <laughs> Tarek, yeah, I think, I, I think you, I, yeah, sorry. I, I can't see the question. Could you just run that past me? He, he, is, he says in the Q&A there, and he's saying yeah. that the percentage um, of reserves, which... Um, a fiat cash you have to keep as um you know on the on the asset side of the balance sheet against your liability is 12 and a half times what regular reserving uh is and he's citing here in fact a um the uh, some guidance issued by um by reed smith in the in the united states is proving a kind of sec risk aversion here um i wasn't quite sure what dan was was driving at but he has drawn our attention to this um this uh release from from reed smith perhaps you should you should look at that while we talk about Jen's question which is really the um a good good point to end as we're into our last 10 minutes now and um ian asked this question what is the major custodial business model here is it just about private key management in which case why would it matter what the asset is is it holding tokens themselves on behalf of clients? Then that doesn't undermine the idea. Doesn't that undermine the idea of a self-maintaining register, which is a major benefit of fund tokenization? And I'm I'm thinking here. We you know we're talking about custody, and at the moment there isn't a single model uh, available. We see non-bank custodians, for example, taking out insurance policies. Uh, we see them getting very enthusiastic about taking out these professional certifications. These SOC 1 and SOC 2, these ISA 3000, 3402 uh, certificates in a clear effort to make themselves more appealing to institutional money. Uh, we also see them adopting, you know, processes and procedures very familiar from the global custody industry, like asset segregation uh, and and so on. But do we have, is 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 a single model of asset safety visible yet do we do we do we think um tilo i don't know whether you you feel we're getting to that point where um both regulated banks and non-regulated custodians and regulated non-bank custodians are kind of converging on a single proposition which an institutional investor can look at it and say well i'll choose that provider rather than that one because there isn't really a huge distinction in terms of the product that they're they're offering are we getting standardization of product offerings yet? Uh, I think I think we're not even at a level where we have a, a broad range of well-regulated and trusted networks, let alone then products and services on, on top of those. I would start first with the with the network availability here, whether you 
make buy or, or partner i think is less of a question it's more the question how of security there was there was asked uh, mentioned earlier in one of the questions the question of security is particularly important and competing on those aspects amongst the providers that exist today and the future ones that will enter the market, I think is not a good idea. It should, would rather have to be, in my view, competing on products and services on these platforms and in, the, in these ecosystems. And as we're not even at that first stage yet, from my perspective, at institutional grade levels, I would um, I would say we, we need to focus on those aspects first. And then the question is indeed, is it key custody that, that we, we need to focus on? And in my view, yes, in the coming years, coming from later this year, people will realize that key custody is probably the element of importance that we need to focus on. But that's my, my private uh, business view. Um, and then from there, continue on with products and services, be it uh, collateral management services, lending services, uh, mobilization services between of, of assets be on, on different chains and across ecosystems. I'll stop there because the, the those people who actually have existing and already running blockchain solutions might have a this or a different view uh, here in the on the panel. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I mean, key management, I mean, the user word key management, those, that, those are the building blocks it has to start with in order to, to build any level of an infrastructure. And it doesn't matter whether we're tokenizing crypto assets or securities or whatever it may be, you still have to manage the keys. Yes, there are different um, benefits or different uh, items that you can do when it comes to a security token, potentially like revoking and, and doing things like that. But there are still very important things that need to be done with the smart contract, holding the yeah. admin key of the smart contract in, in a secure place that has superpowers that can really cause a lot of damage so it really does come down to the core of key management and and i would agree there are definitely no standards in the market just yet i mean uh people people sometimes go to the hot word in the market so there's a term mpc which is a technology that's being used it's a warm wallet uh, aspect i've heard people call it cold but it's it's warm it's connected to the internet so you can't eliminate risk um and people think that's secure when it's connected to the internet but they're and we believe that you have to have an offline cold solution completely disconnected to eliminate risk. But there are clearly not enough standards in the market uh, that have been coming through. Uh, but it clearly comes down to key management. Um, insurance, um, of course, is, is something we we have the largest insurance available in the market. But again, that's just an added piece of having the proper key management, and that's how you can get access to that kind of a level of insurance. Uh, Marius, I, I guess the real the real question Ian is driving at is you know who's really on the line for customer assets in a futuristic, fully tokenized universe. I think two comments here. Yeah, I think to to Tilo's point, I think we're we're still not uh, in in a place where there is a harmonization across private key management standards and and what it means to operate a qualified custody or fully regulated custody platform. I think. Those standards still have to be defined. We are seeing some, say, certificates being thrown around, and I think different insurance policies as well, with various different types of of, of coverage and 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 premiums, etc. That say for for an investor can be a, a little bit tough to navigate. So I think there we still have a lot of way to go. Um, and second point I think is that a lot of the the business, say, once we solve kind of the the, the challenge that we have now with 
the kind of the infrastructure and the private key management is exactly you know, what, what type of services and products you build on on top of that say custody solution so how do you enable uh, participation in, in all these different use cases on chain how do you do that in a secure uh, regulatory compliant manner and and what are the say products and services that you that you avail uh, be that say tokenization of different assets leveraging different rails and i think Ciro mentioned that here as well, even on, on kind of the blockchain rail side, we're still defining the standards, right? And figuring out, you know, where, where do we, uh, what technologies do you want to use to kind of send these assets from, from one place to the other? Um, so there's there's a lot of work to be done there. And I think for 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 custodians, generally kind of the, the challenge lies there in being nimble uh, and efficient, having, say, security uh, top of mind, um, but then also enabling access to all these innovative use cases that we'll see on kind of the blockchain native side. And then in uh, addition to that, I think also managing or being able to kind of uh, bridge that with say the, the traditional world, so to say, and offering say more of a comprehensive user, uh, user experience where you have the ability to move seamlessly between fiat crypto, uh, but then also uh, being able to participate in the relevant use cases that are uh, on on chain. Uh, and I think that is where you'll see uh, custodians differentiating themselves. And I think where competition will also happen to a large extent once we see kind of the basis points for custody piece uh, compressing and, and going down to what we know from traditional custody business today. Thank you, Marius. Um Tarek, are you ready to address Dan's question? I, I think I, I see he's yeah. SAB 121 here and saying the SEC has issued advice that if you're holding your cryptocurrencies on your balance sheet, you're going to have to allocate not just one to one, but 12 and a half times to one. Yeah, uh, so is, is that, that's absolutely right. That's that's actually coming from the Basel standards. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not something which just the SEC is doing generally generally speaking right now bcbs has taken a pretty punitive approach with respect to the regulatory capital charge of transacting in crypto uh related transactions uh so it's 1250% so it's extremely punitive which just goes to show what a conservative viewpoint uh from a regulatory capital perspective uh bcbs is taking um now would i expect this to change in the fullness of time absolutely i think as people understand operational market um counterparty risk um you know one would expect this to go down but but you know i don't think it's just with respect to the sec this is very much a global approach okay thank you yeah. That answers your question, Dan. Our time is up now, but I'd like to give each of you just a, a chance to say one, um, one final thing, which I suppose is um, it's kind of up to you what you want to say. But my thought process is: do we do we have a clear understanding now of what the to follow up Dan's point and Tarek's answer? Do we have a clear understanding now of what the new risks are with digital assets, and and are we evolving a model which is equipped to to manage the liabilities that those represent, both in terms of capital, but also in terms of the internal processes and procedures uh, and methodologies that that custodians of all stripes uh, use to protect customer assets. Is, is the future 
coming clearly into view now or are we still a long way off mark do you do you feel confident we have the future within our grasp very clearly absolutely i think i think we have we we know what needs to be done and i think we're seeing that from the banks and the financial institutions having a proper security i mean even baffin announced something today with regard to cybersecurity uh, as being really the linchpin and being the most important thing that needs to be handled so it does come back to the the managing the private keys in the most efficient way because we can't afford any level of risk. I mean, you see what's gone over the last two years, and I think people have learned from that. Uh, whether it be having it properly regulated, having the proper security measures and governance uh, and policies built into the systems, uh, and it has to be easy for somebody to use ultimately. So it, it, it's great to have security, which is important, but you also need the usability aspect. Um, so I think there's still the implementation pieces, the devil's in the detail ultimately, but I think the, the people have the roadmap and know what needs to be done. The key is now pushing forward and getting it done. Marius, a final thought from you. Are the bank custodians, non-bank custodians, regulators, asset managers, and investors all, all pushing towards a single vision of what digital asset custody will be like by 2030? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think we are fully there yet. Um, I think yes, no, <laughs> that, that twelve fifty percent. There is a, there is a lot of different. I think of opinions forming of what the uh, say the the total uh, custody marketplace would look like. I think we'll definitely see some uh, consolidation, uh, and I think we will also see entrance some of some of the larger custodians. But I think. And I think it was uh, Tariq that mentioned this. Well, we will probably see coexistence of, say, more traditional uh, firms coming into the space, but also uh, crypto natives or, let's say, uh, non-bank um, custodians coming into the space that will seek to operate, that will seek to be at the the forefront of of innovation. And I think at least in the next ten uh, ten years, uh, we will will kind of uh, have coexistence there, where uh, there will be so much innovation on on the blockchain level as well that is going to be difficult for uh, larger uh, institutions to to keep up. So I think uh, if we say the ten ten years is the near term, and then twenty fifty, perhaps the the world looks different then. But I think we are still uh, operating in a very uh, young industry where where standards are still taking shape and where service providers still have to kind of find their footing uh, together with regulators, uh, private key management uh, and uh, an operational complexity that, that comes with operating this type of business. Tarek, I see you need to go. A last word from you. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I would agree with Marcus that it would, I think we still have a long way to go. I think one of the points one of the issues rather from a legal perspective, which we haven't really touched upon, is also parties understanding what rights they have. Um, and, you know, with FTX, we've seen issues. It's about understanding how segregation models work. Um, and I think for that, we just need more time on the road. Kilo, last, it falls to you. To... All right, on a positive note, uh, financial markets, uh, are very very clearly going going digital and uh, tokenization or blockchain solutions are firmly part of of that answer mixed to to that answer 
uh, that we're looking to present to the market to deliver the efficiencies and the benefits uh, that the technology delivers. Uh, one thing that we still grapple with and that we need to resolve as an industry are the number of use cases that are really interesting and encouraging, but don't yet stack up to business cases. And we need to work on that. And the two dimensions, in my opinion, that will support the drive towards better business cases are the themes that we mentioned, standardization and interoperability and increased regulation, not more regulation, but harmonized and comprehensive regulation across the globe available to the market participants that will, as a de derivative, deliver the security that we need in, in that space. So that, that's my closing remark. I think we're on a good track. The investments are being made. It's still a journey. It's more a marathon than a sprint. And But I think we're well into that marathon already. I've certainly been very struck. Thank you for those closing remarks too. I've been very struck during this entire conversation how difficult it is to contain a discussion about digital asset custody to digital asset custody. There are so many uh, other influences over what will shape its future. But we must stop there. I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Marius Lending-Smith from Finoa, uh, Tilo Derenbach from Clearstream, Mark Mayerfelt from GK8, and of course, Tarek Rashid from Reed Smith. Here at Future of Finance, our next webinar will take place uh, at the same time, same place on the Thursday, the 22nd of February, uh, a little under a month away. In it, we'll be exploring the case for further consolidation of European Central Securities Depositories, which I know that Tilo in particular will be interested <laughs> in. Uh, and that uh, is looking at that as a contribution to the creation of a deeper and more liquid European capital market. And I hope lots of you will be able to join us then. But for now, it's goodbye from the five of us. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.